Greetings from American Exception. I'm Aaron Good, and today we are talking about propaganda with Dr. Piers Robinson, the founding editor of Propaganda in Focus. We discuss a number of topics, including his 2022 article, Cock Up or Conspiracy? Understanding COVID-19 as a Structural Deep Event, and the recent tribute to Lance DeHaven Smith, published at Propaganda in Focus, a piece which Piers asked me to co-write with Professor Matt Witt. Pierce Robinson is also co-director of the Organization for Propaganda Studies, convener of the Working Group on Syria Propaganda and Media, associated researcher with the Working Group on Propaganda and the 9-11 Global War on Terror, and member of PANDA and Berlin Group 21. Pierce Robinson, it's great to finally have you on the show. Hi, good to be with you. So, Pierce, can you tell us about Propaganda in Focus and how you came to establish uh, an independent a venue for academic and scholarly writing uh, that focuses on uh, subjects that get ignored? Sure. I, but part of the idea behind Propaganda in Focus, which, which is a, an online magazine for scholarly orientated work on, on all things propaganda and censorship and issues which are, as it were, propagandized and people don't sort of necessarily grasp what's going on. The, the, the logic and the purpose behind all of this was really came out of, you know, for a number of years, I've been working with uh, colleagues, Mark Christian Miller, for example, uh, David Miller, through setting up the Organization for Propaganda Studies. And this was set up because we thought, well, we really need to get academics to pay more attention, scholarly attention to the issue of propaganda, because this is clearly a major part of understanding how power works in our societies. And, and we've had that set up for a number of a number of years. And one element of that, um, and it's particularly Dan Brody, Professor Dan Brody and Ben Lindsley, um, you know, we had this continual conversation that we really need to create a platform because we see how our colleagues battle to get material published in mainstream academic journals. Um, we see the need and, and actually the, the thirst that there is amongst the public for information and, you know, reliable information about propaganda and about what's going on in the world. Um, and we thought, well, you know, what's the obvious thing to do to, to set up to create a platform um, where we'll allow academics to write and produce material, which perhaps is not possible for them to get into academic journals, but also a platform which is accessible for the public. So, you know, although we do have some very long articles in propaganda and focus, you know, one of the ideas is to try and make the, the material as accessible as possible to members of the public so that people can start to become better informed about these issues. Um, and, and, and that's what, where really the, the genesis for, for this came from. Um, and we've been running since May. We've got about 32, 33 contributors now. Uh, we've published over 50 articles. And we intend, as we go into 2023, to carry on what we're doing. But also, um, one strand, we want to start to have foundational articles written, which provide really sort of updatable information data banks on issues such as the, the 60s assassinations, um, 9-11, COVID-19, um, to provide a kind of a well-sourced resource for people to go to if they want to find out um, issues which are simply censored out of existence um, because of all the propaganda we have. 
Um, and we also more medium term, you know, we're seriously considering establishing a, a formal academic journal component of propaganda and focus where we'd have um, space for full length academic papers, peer reviewed, etc. But that's a little bit further down the line. At the moment, we're, we're mainly focused on um, sort of solidifying the, the, the um, propaganda focus and, and then developing these foundational pieces, maybe having some uh, uh, lectures and so on, some video clips put in as well. Um, but but that's that's it in a nutshell. People people want to know about propaganda. People need to know about propaganda. Most academics are too scared to engage the issue or or completely oblivious to, to the problem of propaganda. Um, so that's why we're doing what we're doing at the moment with propaganda and focus right. and 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 you know ultimately also through the organisation propaganda studies, which which we will hope to develop in the coming years. I had a earlier episode in the podcast on propaganda with a, a historian who's on the left politically, uh, Daniel Bessner, and he's a he's a nice guy, but he was making an argument that I I don't know if he was spitballing or how much he really still would adhere to this argument, but he was saying there's not that much propaganda, and then he defines propaganda as outright government sponsored disinformation. Um, but I actually think there's a fair amount of that, but I think that there's a lot more than that. How do you, in your mind, define propaganda because this is kind of a key foundational thing uh here yeah i i mean for, for example i mean i know that mark mark crispin miller you know tends to define propaganda as, as any kind of organized promotion and, and so on um I, I tend to work with a definition and, and i wrote a paper with a number of colleagues eric herring Diane bakir and um david miller a number of years back it's in critical sociology where we actually sort of, you know, we went through all the literature on both public relations through to propaganda, and we put forward a conceptual framework. And I'm not going to go into the details of it uh, here and, and bore you all. Um, but the, the idea is, is that not all persuasion should be seen as propaganda, that propaganda should be seen as principally a form of persuasion which involves manipulating people. It's getting people to do things that they wouldn't otherwise do if they hadn't been misinformed or if they hadn't been coerced in some ways or incentivized in some ways. But it's primarily the process of, of organizing conduct, of organizing behavior, trying to manipulate people into, into doing certain things, believing certain things and behaving in particular ways. Um, and so, of course, as I'm sure you're aware, historically, propaganda was seen as this necessary tool of governance. If you go back to the first part of the 20th century, um, and then terms such as public relations were created, as Eddie Bernays points out, to essentially relabel propaganda as, as people became more and more aware that they were being manipulated through advertising or, or political um, propaganda. Um, and as they became more aware of those activities, um, what well, propaganda going on, they relabeled it as public relations and, and called it something else and so on. So that's public relations. The term public relations is propaganda by euphemism. Yeah, it's a replacement term. Eddie Bernays uh, is, is quoted as saying. I mean, I, I don't mean that. I mean, I, right, right. But what I mean is like it, it, the, the reformulation is itself a form of propaganda. <laughs> Is what I'm. I don't know that maybe that's amusing to me, but like it's that's just what I was trying to say. But yeah, they're the same thing. It's just it's an exercise in propaganda to rename propaganda. Yeah, 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 for sure. It's a, it's a rebranding. <laughs> so that's these guys never. They, which of course they would do that because that's what they do, right? I mean, they're propagandists. Yeah, and, and it never stops. I mean, this is what the the, the British historian, the late uh, 
Professor Phil Taylor said, you know, he said there's a euphemism industry, you know, that they went to public relations and then you had uh, perception management, um, strategic communication, all of these terms, which, of course, if you look yeah. at the academic literature is, is buried in, in, this, in these, this terminology. And, but what they're talking about is what you would have called propaganda in the first part of the 20th century. Um, so, right. so way we way I, I define it is that it is the process of manipulating people, and and of course a lot of it occurs through manipulation of information. Right, this is what people are most familiar with: deception, which doesn't often involve outright lying. It's, it's often you know um, exaggeration, omissions, etc., misdirection, and so on. Although you know, lying is a part of it, but you have the kind of manipulation of information and deceiving people. But you know, but you also have you know structures and, and approaches to organising conduct which involve incentivising people. You know, tax offers of promises of tax cuts in elections, for example, um, and then of course outright coercion in terms of getting people to act in, in particular ways. So um, one example we put, I think, in this conceptual paper we wrote is um, you know dropping uh, leaflets in Afghanistan saying surrender, surrender, kind of thing. Well, you know, that's that's communication, persuasion, propaganda activities. But of course, the whole thing's backed up by the material threat of force. Um, the, the leaflets only work because uh, the Afghan soldiers know that there are American troops in the country. Um, so it's this idea that, you know, propaganda is actually quite expansive. If you, if you understand it as manipulation of people, getting people to do act in a way which is not really freely chosen, um, and you include coercion and incentivization. You then look back at democracies and you look at the world we live in. And in response to your previous guest, um, it's 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 ubiquitous in democracies. In fact, you know, there's a case being made that it's so ubiquitous and extensive um, that we don't have functioning democracy in, in a world where there is this level of coercion, incentivization, and deception. Um, it's impossible for people to be um, sort of carefully considering <laughs> debates over what we should and shouldn't do in various issue areas. People, people are being just either deceived or pushed and cajoled in, in particular directions. And that's clearly fundamentally undemocratic. Right. I mean, I think in, in a capitalist society, this is uh, a huge problem. And it, when you look back at it dispassionately, uh, then it seems like, you it calls into question the extent to which there ever was much democracy. I mean, uh, some of these issues fundamental to capitalism, it's like the propaganda battles of the past were so decisively won that they don't even have to be fought anymore. And let me give you a, an example that comes to my mind that it's just because I listen to Michael Hudson and uh, a lot, and he talks about economics, and he talks about the history of economics and economic debates in the past, which is like something that's kind of hard to go and revisit unless you really want to make that your focus. So I heard him say one time that, well, you know, they used in the earlier part of the 20th century, they had debates over capitalism because there were questions about it and it had to defend itself. And so these questions of like, why would you have a, a private oil company instead of a public one? And the idea was that like, well, by because they make these profits, they can like then reinvest them in other areas. And that actually helps society to grow more and is good for the benefit of everyone. Well, that's an argument that maybe you could have made it back then, but if you, if anyone trying to make that now would have a harder time making it, and yet, but they never even have to because the question never even gets asked. I realize, like, and it's this way in so many areas where we're like, 
in terms of credit, you know, money creation, uh, the ownership of, of utilities, uh, all of these rent seeking uh, enterprises like they've put they've you ha- they've made so much money that they've been able to manipulate so many institutions that we don't even talk about. We don't even raise these questions anymore. Mm. I mean, it's really par- a paralysis of the mind or something. For sure. I mean, put simply, you know, we're, we're very deep in. in, in yeah, and we don't even know which way to go. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, for sure. I mean, I, I, I sometimes comment that my experience of, of academia sort of going through my PhD into the career and, and then sort of moving into the realm of effectively independent sort of academia and research is, is this feeling of descending into a getting deeper and deeper mired in, in propaganda and then slowly clawing myself out of it. Um, and that's just my academic career. I think, you know, if you look at our education systems and so on, you can see, um, you know, sort of how much big, a bigger role propaganda plays in, for example, the example you just gave of, you know, some questions which are just erased from debate and discussion. It's just not there and so on. Um and it's like there's a there's a debate and then there's one side's argument and the other sides and and the bad argument prevails but there's not even an argument yeah it's really something yeah no it it is and and this of course this is in in a way this is the logic behind the organization for propaganda studies and propaganda and focus is that you know we're not just a bunch of researchers and scholars who are interested in in some niche avenue The, the point here is that you know, this is fundamentally, you know, one of the biggest kind of problems that we have in in our democracies is that propaganda has taken us to a point where it's not functioning properly, where powerful actors have huge sway over um, how people think and behave, um, arguably reaching a kind of, as we were mentioning before, the interview, a crunch point at the moment with, with COVID and so on. Um, but this is a very big problem. This is um, one of the biggest challenges that we we have, I think, in terms of, and I take your point about when did we ever have democracy? <laughs> and, and that's a fair point. But, you know, you can say, well, okay, putting that to one side, we at least have an idea of what democracy should look like and how it should operate. Um, and, you know, if we want to try to work towards that, then we certainly have to deal with the levels of propaganda. Um, that we have operating. Yeah. And I don't literally think that like it's, it's, there's no, there's been zero democracy ever. I mean, I, I think democracy is a continuum of sorts and that we are just at a really low point because the power, the anti-democratic forces have so much wealth and power and they build upon their gains over and over and over and over again. And then we are, we are where we are. But, you know, I I think that there were times that I mean, the fact that there used to be those debates over the economy and the fact that you had things like the New Deal, that they were afraid to totally try to impose fascism outright in the U.S. They for whatever reason, the, the forces in the U.S. Uh, went for mild social democracy and then they tried to crush it ever since. I mean, there's there were times where there were democratic elements in the U.S., it's just they never they never prevailed in the long run. Yeah, it, it's really good. It, it's I mean, Chris Simpson's The Science of Coercion, and I think it's in that book where he he point he goes through this. But he goes through the sort of nineteen twenties and nineteen thirties, I think, and the development of the discipline of communication studies. And and I think it's in that book. I could be wrong, um, but he talks about the way in which um, you know sort of sociologists you know were talking about power 
and they were talking critically about power. But there was this phase in the 30s, and it happened particularly with communication studies where discussing power was kind of an elite was removed from the equation, and the, the, the discipline was was driven down the road of looking at you know the impact of media upon public opinion and so on, just at that very narrow section of the, the equation or, or, or the question. Um, and he argues that that was, you know, driven by, you know, funding drives in, in uh, government intervention, ba- basically in the run up to the Second World War, trying to make sure that the communication academics were going to be doing something that would be useful for the war effort. But it, it essentially closed down this kind of stream of, of critical thinking within those discipline areas, which and they never recovered from. Um, you know, you, you can look at communication studies, media studies as, as an academic discipline and, and, and see today you can see the way in which it's never really sort of managed to get beyond this sort of administrative problem solving orientation in terms of the work that most people do. Not everyone, obviously, um, but there are some of some people who are exceptions to that. But but these things, you know, are powerfully defined at an early stage, and 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 for sure, I mean, these questions were more openly discussed at some points, according to some uh, people, such as Chris Simpson. So it wasn't as it wasn't always as we find ourselves today, um, you know, and and it's it's important to keep that in mind as well. I think that. Um, it's very easy, isn't it, when when you critique the current state of democracy, when people say, well, we've never had democracy, it's, it's never been any good, and so on. Um, but, you know, I think, as you say, that there are points in history where you can see higher levels than, than what we have at the moment. Right. I mean, and it just engenders a counterattack from above, and then those have been more decisive, but they seem to have derailed, as you say, this propaganda issue is really huge, and um, we're so drowning in it sometimes that we don't necessarily that the average person who's not focused on it doesn't get it. And so then if you start to get a bigger picture of how the system works as a whole, uh, it's hard to re- be able to relate to the median political perspective in the United States or, or in Europe. Uh, my friend uh, who I just wrote about for you, Lance DeHaven Smith. Um, a dearly departed uh, friend, and uh, it's a dear departed, I should say. And uh, it was hard for me to write that, I got to say, because I kind of, in a way, I put him, I won't say I put him out of my mind, but I, it was, his decline was so sad that I just, to function day to day, I wouldn't, I, I would, I would not really think too deeply about, about it. And so it was, it was a challenge to go back and write that, but I'm really glad that I did. And he wrote, early on about Habermas and about how these ideas and communication would uh, could allow for uh, better ideas in human society to prevail. And then what short circuits that, why, why capitalism still persists, even though uh, most of Marx's critique has been borne out over time, capitalism still persists. And why is that? And uh, Lance really got into some of these areas as to why, uh, these these things don't happen. I mean, he, early on, he wanted to write about Habermas, and then at the end, he's writing about state crimes against democracy, but I see them as kind of related. Uh, how did you become familiar with, with Lance's work, and what do you think of his contribution to this area? Because it's not exactly yours, but it overlaps a lot. Well, I'm, I mean, first of all, I just want to say I'm very grateful to, to you and to Matthew Witt for, for writing that tribute to, to Lance. I thought, I thought it, was a, it was a great piece. Um, 
I mean, my, my and you're you're much more familiar with his work than I am. I came to become aware of, of his work primarily through uh, 9/11, and um, I think he appeared. Was it the Toronto hearing in yes. 2011? And there is a great uh, sort of excerpt there of him talking, and if I remember correctly, is about conspiracy theory, isn't it? And he's talking about um, uh, the way that term has been weaponized and used and so on. So that's how I became familiar with um, his work. And, and then, of course, through state, the concept of state crimes against democracy. Um, so those are the two sort of elements of, of, of his work that, um, as it were, implanted themselves in my mind and i remember and i mean the state crimes against democracy i mean is, is a kind of way of opening up the range of intellectual debate on, on, on all of these issues i think this, the state crimes against democracy captures a kind of an important element of something which most academics are incapable of thinking about um and, and I, I think the example which is often often given is that you know, people don't like to think that their governments might do horrible things to them uh, for the same reasons that in a family unit, um, a children or a wife don't want to think that the husband is an abuser, for example. And you have this incredible hurdle to get over um, to, uh, for, to, and of course, people sort of try to uh, tried to erase this from from any any kind of thought process and so on um and you know and psychologists who deal with abuse within families say this is a regular feature siblings and the, one of the parents simply denies what's going on and of course this is the same dynamic you see between people and the state yeah if, if the state is there to be our protector and so on you have this a similar huge difficulty to uh, reach a point of awareness of thinking, well, actually, my government might do harmful things to me. Um, and I think the concept of state crimes against democracy captures this kind of important idea, well, actually, this is a reality of the world It is necessary to, to, to research and to analyze it. And and, and I, I do think that that's one of, because I have that, this, this was my own experience in terms of becoming more aware of these big issues out there. Is, is that you know, and when I've tried to talk to other colleagues who, for example, over the, the assassinations in the 60s and so on, um, this, this difficulty of getting over this hurdle of would my government do it to me is, 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 is a huge hurdle for a lot of people. Uh, but I, I think, you know, sort of the work that Lance did, you know, is, is a powerful, for people who read it, a powerful way of, of moving people to that position where they recognize that. Um, and you can almost, you can even see in a way elements of this, if you look at the kind of the Chomsky left critique, you know, is often the focus will go in to looking at sort of what our governments do to other people. So it's looking at critiquing imperialism and so on. Um, and so, you know, you, you're okay to exist in this kind of critique of power, which, um, you know, critiques the way power harms people outside of your society, but then you're not quite so capable of, of, of recognizing that those same governments might also harm their own populations in exactly the same way they harm the populations of Vietnam or Syria and so on. Um, and, and you can see that demarcation line, can't you, I think, with the kind of the, the critique in, in the left. that Some people on the left don't go into this territory of state crimes against democracy. They don't go into this area 
which engages with the idea of what was behind the JFK assassination or the issues surrounding 9-11. And, you know, getting rid of that blind spot for people, I I think, is something which the concepts of state crimes against democracy is is a powerful tool for doing that. Um, I don't know if you'd agree with that, but but I I think that's a a, a major thing for for a lot of people in, in terms of helping them get over this bump of recognizing that there's more going on and, and governments don't always um, <clears throat> behave in, a, in, a, in an upstanding way towards their own population. Right. And uh, his, um, his critique of the conspiracy theory term, I think he was, he, uh, it was good that he was out there on that. We had, that was the, he wrote that book around, he put me in the acknowledgements of that book, which was very kind of him. Uh, he, he wrote a little paragraph about me because we had all of these internet or these email communications, like all the time I was talking to him about all of these issues. And then he wrote this, this book on it. And uh, he, he was, it was so, uh, it was great to be involved with him as he discussed all these things and wrote about all of these things in the, in the meantime. And when the book came out, it, it was, uh, I, I was so happy for him to be able to get up uh, that published at a university of Texas press mm. even and uh, this idea of the conspiracy theory is when you understand it, it kind of will drive you a little crazy because you see it all the time. It's a, they deploy it constantly to uh, in a way that is not const- constructive or, you know, uh, logically, it doesn't make any sense and it doesn't help any debate. It actually is the opposite of what communication is. It's like this opposite of Habermas, this anti-Habermas kind of dynamic. Uh, that we see going on. I mean, do you, do you think that that's a key that like that, that focus on linguistics is like a, a good example of just the way that the, the manipulation of it is kind of like baked into the, the cake of our minds at this point. Yeah. I mean, I mean, and of course his work on, on the conspiracy term and its weaponization is, is, has been extremely important. I mean, I mean, yes, this is, this is, this is a, a major component of understanding the way in which the major issues, arguably the most important issues, have become propagandized, is the attachment of these labels. Um, and it's not about logical thinking. As you say, the, the term doesn't make sense in a way, um, or often the way it's used. You know, When people say, well, are you saying that 9-11 was a conspiracy? It's like, well, the official story <laughs> is a conspiracy, obviously, um, and so on. Um, the, the, you know, it, it defies irrational debate. But of course, these terms are, become associated with crazy, irrational thinking, you know, the tinfoil hat, etc. All, all of these are part of, I think, the way in which part of the weaponization of these terms. Um, so it associates an issue with something which is you know, batshit crazy, absolutely ridiculous, and you know, this is so deeply, as you suggested, this is so. Um, wired into people's brains uh, that it becomes this kind of default extremely effective uh, mechanism and and i'm sure you, you've seen this and i'm sure lance would agree with this you know academics live in fear of somebody accusing them of being a conspiracy theorist or somebody at an academic conference saying well is, is, is that not a conspiracy theorist a conspiracy theory that you're advocating there and so you know it, it does the term makes an issue radioactive and, and so on. Um, and it is. Yeah, but in, in ways that are so, uh, that are so illogical yeah. when you look at the actual structure of our government, if you understand that the CIA has a 
billion, multi-billion dollar operations budget. And operations is just more or less a euphemism for a conspiracy where they, you know, are to contrive these illegal actions and then also cover stories for them so that they can lie about them later. I mean, you're, you're, it's, it's known to be a part of the state yeah. apparatus, a, an actual conspiracy function. And so the fact that that can exist alongside a taboo of speculating about that exact phenomenon is, is really, it's really something. Yeah. But don't you think that people are, have wised up or a lot more people have wised up to the term now? Um, I remember Mark Christian Miller saying to me a few years back that, you know, students, his students at New York, NYU were, were over the years have become increasingly um, conscious of the way that term is used. Um, and so, I, you know, it's losing its currency. I, I do have a kind of my, my my what's the word for it? Um, my guesstimate on this is that there's a, a propensity now to use the terms disinformation instead of conspiracy theory. That there's this kind of recognition that the conspiracy term doesn't quite hold the traction that it used to, and people say, "Well, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, last year's conspiracy theory is now the truth, etc." So that, that they're going to shift as they've done with propaganda to PR. That they've got this new set of terminology: disinformation, misinformation. And malinformation as well, isn't it? That's accurate, factual information, but which is used in a way which is out of context and which might damage people's faith and trust in their governments and so on. And of course, that language is is informing the, this, the counter disinformation industry and all of these academics who are sort of smelling the money of the, the funding streams for looking at sort of um, disinformation across social media, etc., um, and, and those terms seem to be, I, I think, you know, I'm concerned that they are, as it were, carrying up the, the weight of, of what the term conspiracy theory used to be doing in terms of shutting issues down. Um, but in exactly the same way as with conspiracy theory, completely irrational. You know, it's like, what do you mean by disinformation? <laughs> And so on. And, and, and then sort of, you know, what about the idea that sort of if you close down debate and so on on scientific issues, you might exclude people who've actually got the right answer and so on. Um, but that's the world that's being created around the disinformation um, and, and counter disinformation industry um, that we've, we've got un, unrolling before us at the moment. Um, but just as illog just as illogical and absurd as the term conspiracy theory, but again, academics or lots of academics seizing upon it, just as academics would, you know, throw out that conspiracy theory smear at a, a conference at somebody to get them to pipe down. Um, you got lots of academics talking and running research projects on how do we deal with the problem of disinformation on Facebook and so on. The obsession with this is so, but you know that on some level there are people who are exactly, I mean, you see this in communications actually. That there have been, this was recently some batch of emails, maybe it was Kit Clarenberg in a story or someone else, but, but basically they were set, talking about Russian. Uh, influence operations and they said like one problem with it is that a lot of the material they put out is factually true <laughs> you know and that it's i think that sums it up like on some level they have to know that like yeah. their enemy is actually the truth 
and they have to somehow, but they have to lie. So they have to lie about that too. And that's the, hence the disinformation. I, I, I think some people behind, you know, driving this know that this is a propaganda operation, you know, counter disinformation, labeling things as conspiracy or labeling things such as disinformation. They know exactly what they're doing. And it's just a, it's a deception. It's a propaganda operation. But I think that all of these other people, I, I, I do wonder, you can't have all of these academics who are getting all excited about studying disinformation and trying to get these grants. They can't all be falling for this. They must realize that this idea of, um, quite apart from the fact that, you know, if you want to talk about disinformation, you know, the, the biggest purveyors of disinformation are governments. But let's put that to one side. They must realize this idea that getting obsessed about what some people are saying on Twitter or Facebook in relation to an issue is just ridiculous and, and so on. Um, but, but, you know, but so many of them are caught up in, 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 in disinformation research and, and agendas. I, I think, amazingly enough, they have actually come to believe it. <laughs> and they actually really do believe that there's this terrible problem with people, you know, engaging in, in high levels of malicious disinformation who have a dark agendas etc and and you know it's, it's a bit like the trump derangement syndrome which people have been <laughs> talking about since 2016 it's just it's, can't see any can't react to any of these developments without this kind of irrational sort of blanket um condemnation um or sort of belief that either the russians are in control of of Trump and the American presidency, all of these crazy things which have now been disproved and so on. Um, but I think, you know, I think a lot of, you know, the professional classes and the academics have got caught up in, in that bubble um, and have come to believe it, which is kind of pretty worrying because. Right. I mean, I think that like people, if people follow the money and I don't mean follow the money in a forensic sense, but I mean, if they chase the money, and go where it is in academia and so on. And that it, you know, it requires uh, basically accepting some certain foundational ideological assumptions. They will, they will oftentimes do it and believe it. There's a handful of people who are probably do get that a lot of it is not, is kind of uh, bullshit, but then there are, it just seems to be something in human. It's the human mind. It's just the, it's, you can't get somebody to believe something when they're, livelihood depends on them you know not believing it or, or i mean this it just seems to be the case over and over again so yeah, yeah I, I think that you're right about some of these people that write these things for brookings institute and so on i mean i think in this climate they're happy to have a job and they they're true believers in a sense of this whole project yeah yeah it, it <clears throat> and and i i'm sure there's always a mixture right there are people who know exactly what's going on and and what they are doing and so on and there are other people who just get caught up in in, in the slipstream of all of this but, but i do think that there is a, a broader point there about academia and you know we we all know what academia is meant to be and how it's meant to function just as we know how the mainstream media is supposed to function um and, you know, I, I think we've lost that in a very big way. Maybe we never had it in, in any sort of true sense. But, you know, we, we have academia at the moment, which is as compromised, as far as I'm concerned, as compromised as the mainstream media is. Um, Just in a more boring way that, <laughs> that people can't really see the scope of unless they really, really want to delve into an area. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So 
I, I, I think you've got a situation where, where academics, you know, sort of when your promotion and when your career is, is dependent to a significant extent on can you get money and can you get money coming in? And, you know, I mean, we all have our own experience of, of, of mainstream academia, but you can you can see how a big funded, well-funded project sort of oils the wheels of promotion within academia. And, you know, that's not healthy because the people who've got most money out there are big, powerful actors. And, you know, they're going to fund you to do things that they want you to do. Um, so, you know, one of, one of the things, you know, the same with mainstream media is we need to get ourselves out of this hole that we, we've dug ourselves into. Mainstream media needs to start to be, you know, we need a, a complete root and branch reform, revitalization of the public sphere in that area, you know, talk about Habermas and so on, and talk about the problems that he talked about, the structural transformation of the public sphere. That needs addressing. Got to, got to address academia as well. Um, you know, we can't have academic spaces polluted by, you know, funding streams, money, and, and so on. And then sort of all ring-fenced ring by this sort of high degree of self-censorship of, um, well, you can't touch that area because you'll be accused of being a, a Russian or an Iranian propagandist or a Putin apologist. And you can't touch that area now because, well, that, that's vaccine um, denial or COVID denial and so on. Um, you know, we, we've got quite a lot of areas now which are sort of basically ring-fenced across academic disciplines. Yeah. As you, you can't go there. Or if you, and then if you do go there, you'll be in a lot of trouble. It's, this is... This is so far away from <laughs> what academia should be and what any society needs in terms of having that kind of you know, space of independent, autonomous thinking where people can think critically and question what's going on. We're so far away from that that it's a it's, it's a distant dot on the horizon. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, the the I think the Enlightenment was never like fully achieved in that way, but we seem to have. There has been a counter Enlightenment. And there's so many episodes that we can't really go into, historical episodes and then subject areas. But one area that you have uh, done some work on in the past, which I think uh, is relevant here, is the Syrian dirty war. And uh, can you tell me why someone who, what, what's the propaganda aspect? Was there propaganda in, in, that, in that conflict or... What, why did you write, spend some time writing about this in the past? Yeah, I mean, my, my approach to the issue was, was a straightforward one. I, I'm somebody who's historically worked on media, war on propaganda. Um, I'd finished up a, a big research project looking at the 2003 Iraq war on media coverage. I'd become more interested in propaganda and manipulation, and I'd done some work on the intelligence manipulation in the run-up to 2003 Iraq war. Got that paper out of the way. Um, and then, you know, sort of naturally, well, okay, we've got conflicts still flowing in under the 9-11 um, narrative, um, and Syria was a big one. So I, I, I started to look at Syria, and it became very clear that there was, you know, a lot of propaganda in the Syrian war. Um, and the way I'd approached it was this, I, I'd sort of, I'd bought, because I wasn't paying any attention, I, I was accepting this kind of mainstream representation of the conflict in Syria that it was a civil war and it was a struggle between democratic forces and 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 the dictatorship etc and and I was more or less unaware of the extent of external involvement in Syria 
And, and I think by about 2015, I became aware that, well, actually, that, that there's extensive involvement on the part of Britain and America in the war in Syria. Um, and then started to look at the propaganda and, and the media coverage in relation to it. Um, and so it's just a kind of a logical thing for me to do. You know, I've looked at the Iraq war. Well, the Syria war is ongoing and, and, and in the news and so on. So I'll start to research it. But as soon as we started to do that, and as soon as we set up this working group to look at Syria, we were attacked um, initially by a former Guardian journalist. But then after that, we, were, we found ourselves on the front page of the Times newspaper uh, with several articles inside the Times newspaper and also an editorial, which was to all intents and purposes calling for our jobs. Uh, saying that there were war crime denying sad apologists working in British universities. And this occurred all around the events of the alleged chemical attack in Douma in 2018. Um, and so, of course, what that kind of indicated to, to me, um, having set up this working group to look at the Syrian war and propaganda, that a, a, that scale of attack against a group of unknown academics who are just looking at this issue indicated that well we're onto something here um and and really the rest is it just grew from there um and the alleged chemical weapon attack in syria and duma i, I think we we'd published one briefing note on it about the questions that were obviously um raised about whether or not the syrian government had carried out the attack um, when the final report came out a year later, um, we'd issued one briefing note, but we were then leaked a document from within the OPCW, the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, who um, were tasked with investigating this alleged chemical attack. Um, and then subsequent to that, we, we had contact with people within the OPCW um, who essentially uh, were um, pointing out that the OPCW investigation of the alleged attack was um, manipulated in order to blame the Syrian government or point the finger in the direction of the Syrian government. Um, and and m me personally, I, I've been writing and, and studying and working on that for, for four years now, this issue. It turned into one where um, there's been a significant number of documents leaked to uh, WikiLeaks, um, a number of OPCW scientists, um, their names have come into the public domain where they have been questioning or they've raised questions about the um, investigation the, of the Duma attack. Um, and and I'm still working and I'm currently working um, alongside Jose Bastani, who was the first director general of the OPCW, um, and Hans von Sponick, who was uh, a former assistant secretary general to the UN and Professor Richard Falk, um, essentially trying to get accountability in the OPCW in relation to the issues raised by the whistleblowers um, about what happened in Douma in Syria. Um, so my, my path has sort of gone from you know, studying and researching and, and then, you know, sort of as this issue is sort of, um, sort of blown up and so on, um, really just, just kind of playing the role of, of trying to sort of get accountability and get the record straight, the historical record straight on um, what happened in Duma, but also 
inevitably more broadly the entire question of the chemical weapons, alleged chemical weapons attacks in Syria over the 10 years of the conflict, which, you know, based upon all of the work that I have done, you're, you're looking at a deception operation, which is very similar to the Iraqi WMD deception 2003, except, of course, the key difference being that that was a manipulation of intelligence saying that Iraq has WMD, therefore we have to invade, whereas with Syria, you've actually had um, the, the, the manufacturing of events, you've had the staging of events, you've had false flags, those kind of processes going on um, in order to try and to discredit the Syrian government and maintain the broader narrative of trying to overthrow the Syrian government um, and the chemical weapons narrative. Um, for everything that I've researched and looked at, and I've looked at it a lot now, um, is that it is a deception. It's a propaganda operation. Um, so um, that's a pretty a little bit more information yeah. than you wanted, but um, I'm still involved with that. No, that's all, that's fascinating. So I didn't. Uh, Bastani is still active in trying to ref, uh, somehow steer the because he was the guy that Bolton threatened to kill, right? Yeah, but, Back but, in his family or something to yeah, that. Yeah, but Bastani was kicked out of the OPCW in the run up to the 2003 Iraq invasion because he wasn't playing ball. Um, and and he, he he was I mean but Bastani is was at the Courage Foundation panel in in Brussels in 2019, which heard from an OPCW official about what had gone on, um, and so you know he, he recognised I guess that, that the problems which he was very familiar with in the OPCW were there you know many years later still playing out, um, and so on, and so um, you know he, he's. He's spoken a couple of times. There was an attempt for him to speak at the UN, a UN Security Council meeting um, at the invitation of the Russian Federation. And that was blocked by um, a number of states, uh, I think I presumably led by the Americans and the Brits, to stop him from being able to speak to essentially relay what the OPCW whistleblowers were saying about what had happened. Um and so on. So he's, you know, he's obviously um, somebody who's very familiar, but also Hans von Sponnick, he, he resigned over the Iraq policy, the oil for food and so on. Um, you know, he, the sanctions yeah, regime, right? Yeah, that's what the sanctions regime. There was another guy, there was, a, there was another guy as well that designed or that resigned at uh, Dennis Halliday. during that time period. Holiday. I was going to say a holiday, but then I was like, that's not it. But holiday, that, that's right. So, yeah, so, so you know, there are people who, trying to do the right thing in these big international institutions to some degree, or at least yeah. they have some. Well, of course, they're out of these international institutions now, but, you know, but, right. but they are, you know, as, as authoritative voices who've been involved with them. You know, there is this recognition, that, and of course, Iraq was a very clear example of this, that the way in which you know, the UN will vote, they didn't get the vote through, but you could still see, you know, the drive with Bastani and the OPCW to get them to finger... The, the, the Iraqi government to justify the invasion. You've got exactly the same problems going on now. Um, and, and with the OPCW issue, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's been quite a lot of coverage of it. I mean, Peter Hitchens in the UK has covered it. WikiLeaks has released documents. Um, Aaron Maté at the Grey Zone has done an excellent job in, in reporting on the issue. And then there's me and sort of other academics and then uh, Bastani and, and Falcon von Sponnick still pushing away at trying to get accountability, essentially, for, for the um, whistleblowers. And there's a lot of people paying attention to it. And, and, and I do think, you know, 
because I've gone through all the material, anybody give it a few years and people go back and look at the details of what happened in the Syrian war in relation to alleged chemical weapons. Uh, the, 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 the propaganda operation will, will become fairly transparent, fairly obvious to see. Um, I mean, this is the issue about the alleged Duma attack is that, um, you know, the, the plausibility of the scenario, the, the, the cylinders and the impact damage and so on simply don't add up for anyone who pays attention to it. Quite aside from the fact that you've got people involved in the investigation saying, look, we were, as it were, suppressed and so on. Um, if you just look yeah. at the basic sort of facts of the matter, um, you can see that, well, this doesn't look right. And, and of course, the, the alarming issue in, in, in the case of Duma is, is you have 40 civilians who were found dead in a building. Um, right. And it's, I mean, one of one of the issues which which we've raised is that, and just came out in leaked documents, is that the toxicology report was that these civilians had not been killed by chlorine gas; they had to have died some other way, um, and that was suppressed and buried, and, and then came out in leaked documents. But of course, the, the issue that raises, of course, is how did these people die? Um, and then that raises the question, obviously, of, of war crimes and the people who were there on site were these white helmets, these first responders uh, units who are funded by British and American um, sources and people critique them for being too closely allied to the opposition. Duma itself, this was uh, uh, run by Jaish al-Islam, an extremist group who were holding very large numbers of civilians in underground prisons at that time. So you don't have to have an overactive imagination to see the kind of problem that you might have with Duma. You, you might well have had a significant number of civilians murdered and then used uh, in the context of creating the impression that uh, this chemical attack had occurred. Um, so it's uh, you described it as a dirty war, and, and this is how well, actually how Max Blumenthal and, and Aram Maté describe it when they talk about the Syrian war. But yeah, it's a 10-year war where the West has become involved in aligning itself with many groups who, by our own definition, would be seen as extremists, would be seen as Al-Qaeda-linked, etc. Um, and... I mean, it's the most amazing thing that because we years ago we invaded that region in response to you know the global war on terror, and it was revealed that we had all these designs to change the regimes in all these other countries, and then all these years later we use those Al Qaeda types to continue with that regime change. Like it, it actually, if you just look at it, it just shows that the entire thing from Iraq to Syria. It's just a massive uh, imperial crime spree. And the Duma, the OPCW scandal is just one part of it, but the entire thing just falls apart under any scrutiny. It's, it's, uh, it's astounding. Yeah, it, it, it is incredible with Syria. I mean, people like Tulsi Gabbard, in, in, in terms of high-profile people in the U.S., have you know, has made this point you know, clearly that sort of, well, you know, okay, if, if 9-11 um, was about fighting al-Qaeda... <laughs> then how is it that we're in, in Syria now aligning with Al-Qaeda? There's no logic to it, as, as you say. But of course, you know, then, you know, there's, there's another analysis out there about 9-11 itself. Yeah. As, as you know, and, and right, so which she will never touch with a 10-foot pole. No, she, 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 uh, she won't touch it with a 10-foot pole. But, you know, you, you, I mean, no, I don't know in relation to her, but, but certainly, you know, the, the Tucker Carlson, Tucker Carlson, 
event? Was it just before Christmas over the JFK files and what he said? Um, I know that you know people read this in different ways and people are not trusting of Tucker Carlson, which is perfectly reasonable to question <laughs> motivations and so on. But you know, you, you do start to wonder how much these things, you know, if we are at this moment of crisis in the West and if there are significant shifts in the balance of power globally and that's then playing out in terms of elite divisions in the West, you do wonder whether maybe these things will come out. Um, there's a lot of people who question 9-11 now. It's an extraordinary number in terms of opinion polls. I mean, it's, it's a big chunk of the population. And there's a lot of very determined scientists, you know, the architects and engineers. Um, and, you know, Matt Campbell, whose brother died in 9-11, he's, he's pursuing legal processes in the UK to have a proper um, uh, coroner's inquiry into his brother's death. Um, you know, there's a lot of activity and a lot of information. Um, so, you, you know, maybe these things will become, um, they'll stop being unspeakable. Uh, maybe JFK will stop become being unspeakable in 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 polite circles. Um, and maybe maybe that's a process we're seeing. So I, I wouldn't I wouldn't rule anything out at the moment. We're in we're in pretty um, tumultuous times, and you know we've had the whole COVID thing, which you know, obviously I had time to touch upon. But you know there's a lot going on uh, on remarkable levels. Throw in Ukraine, right. war, Russia, China, all of these things. As, as, as we said before the interview, it's, we've never experienced anything like this in our lifetime, and nor, as you said, rightly said, perhaps never in history have we been at this kind of point of, of empire stroke, end of empire, of, of a truly global um, sort of imperial machine. Um, and things yeah. are happening and things are changing. Um, so I, I, mean, I think there's two things happening at the same time that, that are, that we cannot, that are just of staggering, uh, uh, importance. And if you, if you look at them, the first, which we take for granted, but it's the amount of scandals that are, that have just come to the surface, like that are, that are out there in the public record. Syria is one of them. I think that there's plenty around Ukraine that is quite scandalous. The, the, within Syria, there's the the white helmets and the OPCW scandal, all these terrible parts of it. There's the Epstein business. Uh, it, so we have all these scandals, but at the same time, you have also this geopolitical uh, shift, which is really un something that we have not seen for centuries in that the West doesn't seem to be able to be the unchallenged hegemon of the of the globe anymore. Um, and, and the, you know, because for the last century or more, more than a century, the world order has been defined a, a, as a result of struggles and wars between Western powers. And then, but the West was always unassailable. Now we're seeing something different. I mean, this, these things are related. So do you think that, I mean, I'm sure we are, I would guess we're in agreement on this, but do you think that this is why the propaganda has become kind of so crazy is because every, the, the things are falling apart on in both areas in terms of the, the management of what's going on and that yeah. the way that they're not doing it well, causing scandals, but then also just materially, they're losing power around the globe. I, I, I think, I think you're correct. I, I think there is an element of, of, of losing control and increasingly extreme propaganda activities 
um, you know, propaganda is off the charts. And Ukraine, you know, it's like something you'd see in World War One, but set even more extreme. Um, and I think, it, you know, I think there's good reason to think that it is a function of, as, as you say, there is this kind of shift globally. There's this crisis in the West because of these shifts, end of empire. Uh, I'm also very aware of the people who are, you know, pointing to the global governance structures and saying, hey, you know, there's there's a lot of coordination between elites globally. This is not just a kind of, you know, decline of West and rise of competitors. There's also this kind of global governance structures um, which are playing out. And to me, it's unclear. I, I'm not convinced by any of the kind of polar positions on that, that this is all to do with, you know, end of empire, the rise of China and, and Brooks and so on, and into a multipolar world. I don't fully buy into that. Well, I'm not fully persuaded that that's the only thing going on. And I'm also not fully persuaded that this whole thing is, is a kind of a global governance takeover um, that we're seeing. But the, these are elements of, of what we have in front of us. So I'm kind of open-minded about that. But I think all of those th things still mean the same thing, meaning exactly what you're saying is that there is a level of kind of chaos, narrative chaos in the West. Um, as, as elites are trying to hold on, as Case van der Peil argues in states of emergency, he's trying to hold on to control. Um, and we're seeing this with this kind of manifestation of you know, levels of censorship, you know, FBI getting involved with Twitter on a daily basis. And we can safe to assume that they're involved with all other social media companies and probably most of the mainstream media. As, as well. But these things, as you said, are becoming revealed. And, and Epstein as well. I mean, Epstein is a big one. I mean, I haven't had a chance to look at Whitney Webb's book, was it One Nation Under Blackmail? But, you know, I mean, th this thing is clearly, you know, it's, uh, the evidence is so strong that you have Epstein involved with major high-profile figures from across the West. Um, and, you know, of course, we know what's happened to Epstein and, and um, you know, sex trafficking, etc. All of these things are not really open to dispute anymore. <laughs> what is what is not totally transparent now is quite how uh, interconnected, you know, those activities are with uh, a large number of our political establishment. But there's obviously something very, very rotten there. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, you know, for people on the street seeing that kind of thing, that these, these things really matter. That people go, well, okay, I, I know what's going on. I, I can see these photographs of these people together. Oh, yeah, there's Bill Clinton going on these flights or whatever to, to his island, etc. Um, and, you know, people get pretty angry and justifiably angry that those kind of things are going on in the centers of power. Um, and, you know, I, I think, I, I think you know, whatever's happening globally and whatever's happening with global governance structures, I think, I think elites... And the establishments in the West, um, if they haven't realized it already, um, they need to realize it pretty quick that, um, you know, they're, they're losing the support of, you know, a, a very big chunk of, of the populations beneath them. Um, and, and the corruption is, in a sense, becoming very, very clear. So anyway, in response to your question, yeah, I think a lot of we, what, what we're seeing is, is, is a function of, of this period of change that we're going through. Um, and you know, I, I don't think, I mean, I don't think we're winning in terms of bring back democracy, deal with political establishments, but we're definitely not losing at this point in time. Um, right. You know. It's difficult to think of what sort of countervailing force is going to be able to hold sway. I mean, if you look at it, I mean, Aristotle wrote about 
oligarchy and he said that democracy arises when one part of the oligarchy decides to rally the people to its side against the you know the rest of the corrupt oligarchy i mean it, i think the time is right for somebody to do that but the forces against so i don't mean it has to be one person it's just at some point there's going to be an opportunity for that kind of a, a, a of a movement politically and then is is that going to could that possibly carry the day in in the US with the system that we have i mean we are just it's it's a intentionally kind of um paralyzed system in terms of oh. dealing with any serious problems but it really doesn't have to be you could so much is fundamentally like arbitrary and, and in the hands of people given executive power, uh, even if it's in the, not even in just in the executive branch, but the judicial branch could potentially apply the 14th amendment to different things and, and restructure a lot of, uh, this, the structure straight of, of uh, our regime, basically, if there was the will to do it. But, is, is that gonna is it gonna happen this is just it's these this is the weirdest one of the weirdest moments in history it must be yeah i i, I guess this is the this is great i know we, we don't know what's going to happen um you know and this is all sort of virgin territory for academics journalists citizens everyone i mean i guess what we, you know people such as you and i have studied a little bit i mean you know change tends to happen through you know, grassroots people, mobilization. It also happens when parts of the elite, as you as you described, recognize there's a need to change course. Um, and maybe this is what we will see emerging in the coming years. Um, you know, if, if that struggle isn't won, we might just see a, a further clamping down, a removal of all forms of democracy in, in, in the West. Um, but you know, hopefully that won't happen. But you know, it might be we're just going to see, go through a process of, of struggle as 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 this kind of pushback consolidates. Hopefully, as parts of the elite recognise that okay, the West does need to change course. We've got to sort of dial down the belligerence and so on. Um, you know, and if that starts to occur, and we start may start moving in a better direction. But it's going to take both, right? Yeah, it's, it's going to take people and activism and grassroots pressure. It's going to require people in, in positions of power to, to lead um, and so on. And, yeah, I mean, we're just going to have to see. I mean, I, 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 there's a lot of activity on the street across Europe. There's been a lot of protests, not necessarily focused sufficiently but there's been a lot of resistance to ukraine a lot of resistance to the covid response and and so on so um you know and there are some uh you know if you think about political leadership that there is some chatter out there about the need to get beyond left right and recognize that we've got a corrupt establishment and then we've got the people um and so on so i think those are all sort of signs of you know positive signs that you know of concerted political pushback um but for sure i mean who knows where this is going to end up we um it's, it's obviously going to be a period of struggle and strife um here in the west um certainly right yeah i, I don't I, I don't i can't predict exactly what's going to come mm. but it's uh 
either way this the current it can't stay the same because it's just too crazy yeah, yeah i agree <laughs> So you wrote a paper on the uh, pandemic, which was, uh, to me, it was uncanny that you wrote it because when I was briefly at Covert Action Magazine, I was going to contact, I did contact Sam Husseini uh, and Gumby and ask if they were interested in possibly writing a paper that got into the question of whether the pandemic could potentially be a structural deep event. And then I left Covert Action and I didn't follow up with that. And so I, I didn't think about it that much until I saw your article, uh, which is basically making that argument uh, how with and I did not nudge you in that direction. So this is quite a, a funny convergence in terms of what we were thinking. What led you to write this article on the pandemic, which is, of course, a very taboo subject for a lot of academics and mainstream journalists? Um, how, how did you come to write this piece? Well, primarily, when when COVID um, when, as I call it, the COVID event started, um, I, I think I, I was, as some other colleagues of mine, Mark Crispin Miller, for example, were, were very cautious that this this could be not what it appears to be. Um, and and I did actually write a piece very early on for Off Guardian, uh, I think in March 2020, saying, look, you know, and actually drawing a comparison with 9-11 saying, look, we've got to be careful in these situations where you have terrified populations because these events get exploited, you know, just as 9-11 arguably instigated, but certainly exploited um, to start wars, etc., which didn't really have anything to do with fighting terrorism so much as geopolitical ambition. You know, that we've got to be really careful. And so I'd made this point early on. Um, and then to be quite honest, I was just following the scientists who are coming out very early on saying, you know, A, this, this virus is not as dangerous as it is being presented. Um, and then when they started to lock down um, populations, you know, you, you had increasing numbers of pretty credible, high profile scientists saying, look, the lockdowns don't make any sense. Um, and I think it was a great Barrington declaration by the autumn of 2020, which was Sinetra Gupta from Oxford and then Martin Kulldorff, who I think is Harvard, and Fade J. Bhattacharya, who's um, uh, Stanford, I think, um, saying that, look, you know, the, 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 the response doesn't make any sense. Um, this is a virus which will um, become endemic and people will build up immunity, etc. The idea of locking down whole of society effectively simply doesn't make any sense and so i was following those scientists and, and i think by a year into covid19 it was quite transparent that, that, that those scientists had won the argument um and then, then the obvious question which gets raised okay is this something which is being used um for purposes other than um public health if it, if it, if it makes no sense in public health terms then is there something else going on and of course by that point you you were having people talking about well okay you've got this the economic crisis emerging in the autumn of 2019 is, is could that have anything to do with with the kind of response which was put in place um and then sort of sometime after that you got sort of you know, of course uh, uh, Bobby Kennedy's book on Fauci talking about the corruption of uh, the CDC and, and the regulatory bodies, etc., and, and the pharmaceutical industry. 
Um, and then with the subtext of, you know, intelligence agency interaction involvement. Um, and so then that just sort of opens all the kind of questions you would open about, you know, for example, the assassination of JFK or 9-11, that sort of you have an event which is presented in, in one way. People believe it's all about this, but actually you've got um, political and economic agendas being pursued. Obviously, the, the entire World Economic Forum and talk of digital ID, digital passports, um, central bank digital currency. These are all things which were being pushed as the COVID-19 response uh, went on. Um, and all of these things are, are, you know, potentially represent a real concentration of power. Um, so I, I think sort of is all of those developments and in the context where, you know, the science, the, the scientists certainly who are arguing that this thing isn't as dangerous as they're making it out to be and responses such as lockdown don't make any sense. I was completely persuaded by what they were arguing. So I was thinking, okay, so it doesn't make sense really in those terms. There's other stuff going on. Um, and yeah, I mean that, you know, obviously Peter Dale Scott's structural deep, deep event is, is, is the perfect sort of uh, framework to bring to bear, to start to ask those questions. Um, so, so that's how I arrived at it. And I think, you know, by 2021, I was, you know, saying publicly this is not about um this is not a public health this is not primarily a public health emergency that we have here we've got something bigger going on um and need to start to research and write about it um which i'm continuing to do in you know working with an organization called panda who have got people looking at various aspects of covid but who are interested in this question of the politics behind it um but there's lots of other people doing this now i mean Case van der Pyl's book State of Emergency is very good. Arund Katerji, I'm actually I've probably got his surname wrong, but you know, he talks about the biosecurity state. Ian Davis looking at global governance structures and public private partnership. So there's actually a, a, a burgeoning literature, I think, now of, of at least sort of independent research talking about the politics, the economics, the sociology um, underlying COVID 19 and the response to COVID 19. Um, and hopefully over time, sort of understanding and that will, will, will get stronger. But, but to me, the, the, there's the, I, I think we've got fundamentally the same problem we've got with, okay, JFK, 9-11, with COVID. You've got these things happen. There are questions about how they come to happen, which are important, which we need to interrogate. Um, but even before we get to those questions, we've got events which serve purposes and which get used. Um, 9-11 to start wars, still go on arguably, JFK, I mean, to keep the Cold War going, <laughs> to keep, to, to, to get... I mean, Viet it was a huge reversal of Vietnam and Indonesia policy yeah. where, you know, trillions of dollars hung in the balance. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, or, this is what we've got again, um, arguably on, 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 on a huge, vast level. Um, and also, you know, I mean, some of the things that we're doing in, in this organization, Panda, is that we, we have visiting speakers in. But I mean, in, in my own mind, you know, you've got these debates over global governance. You've got these kind of, you know, the whole fourth industrial revolution discourse and the digitized society. And you can start to see, OK, you've got frameworks for reordering, restructuring the economy and society 
none of which look very democratic. <laughs> and so you can see, okay, here's the real danger here is, is, is that this event will, you know, will continue to be exploited and used or will transform into some other crisis, uh, which is then used to try and push through these, you know, profound transformations of, of our societies, whether it's, you know, the, the global pandemic preparedness agenda, which is being pushed through, or, you know, the online harm safety legislation you're seeing in the European Union and the UK and just smuggling in the fact checkers into the regulation of social media. This is censorship in by any other term. And so, you know, we've got all of these things going on. And, and I think um, understanding how they sort of interact and are linked to events such as COVID-19 is, is important for us to um, get to grips with um and fairly quick so what do you what's the right wing i mean this the covid thing it kind of drives me a little batty in that the a lot of the people that talk about certain issues of it which are relevant but they do it in a they're they're coming at it from a weird place and in, in particular i'm talking about right wing people yeah. who who basically worship capitalism and yet they see the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab as these comic book villains, which I think is actually not so far off the mark, but they're comic book villain, villains because they more or less personify and act as helmsmen for capitalism, which the right wing yeah. loves. I mean, what, what do you think is the agenda of, like, of, of Schwab and the World Economic Forum uh, in regards to COVID, and and what do you make of the right of the right wing critics of sh uh, how weird is what, how should we even uh, wrap our minds around the fact that the only res the biggest resistance to him is coming from the right wing? Yeah, I mean the, the simplest way I, I can answer that question is, is to talk about my own experience be, working with people who have been pushing back against COVID because as you're right to point out that so the the, the response to COVID or rather the, the challenge to the COVID narrative and the challenge to the policies has come from the right and not from the left um, in any significant way. And in, in my experience is, is that the people on the right tend to interpret sort of, you know, things through a left-right paradigm. So they see, well, okay, if, if, if the WEF and Schwab are there, if, 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 they're, if they're the baddies in this and they have to be communists and so on so you see that that sort of muddying the waters and so on and and i think that drives this the kind of discourse that you see from some of the right resistance um and what's interesting to me is is that on, on the left of course have had a blind spot i think to covid19 in, in a very significant way um and and to, to the extent that the left understand western imperialism yeah that the right critique of covid19 don't get that People or both sides have got their blind spots in this, and that's a, a kind of a, a challenge which I, I have to navigate working or working with people sort of in, in these various positions who are pushing back against COVID nineteen. But I, I think it is a function of blind spots. But I, I think that the problem is it's, it's, it's a misrecognition that the, the fundamental problem we have is is a concentration of power, political and economic power, into an elite. If you want to call it fascism. You can call it fascism because it does kind of fit that definition. I'm not saying that's what we should be labeling it, but it does kind of fit that. Now, this is where it becomes a challenge for people on the left because, you know, I am convinced by some people on the right who are saying, well, actually, the problem is it's not 
capitalism per se. The problem is the kind of concentration of power into big corporations and, and so on. So, um, you know, I, I can understand that point. But this is ultimately what you've got. And I think you've got the right seeing this as, as a kind of a communist takeover. You've got the left seeing the reaction to COVID as this is just, you know, right-wing fascism, capitalism, et cetera. Um, and both of them aren't sort of accurately diagnosing the problem, the central problem we have, which is at its heart is, 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 a, is a profound concentration of political and economic power. And you can see this in all of the kind of corruption and conflicts of interest that you see at the power center. Um, and that this is a thing which needs to be pushed back against. And, you know, this is my point, point about my comment earlier about the getting beyond the left-right divide is that I think that we do need to have people who, who, who try to think outside of the framework of left versus right and think about, okay, well, we've got a corrupt political establishment. We have people from the right who sort of, you know, value aspects of capitalism. We've got people on the left who, who value you know, different sort of organizational structures, etc. But that none of that changes the big problem we've got, which is um, we've got a concentration of power, which is, um, you know, potentially taking us into, a, into very dark places in democratic terms. Um, so I, I, if that answers your question, I, I think there are kind of blind spots on both sides, but that, that's how I kind of explain how, I think that's the problem. People are reacting to what they see as a problem and, that, that, and, and they're reacting it through a kind of their ideological prism, whether they're from the right or the left, and that's not helping them. Um, right. show. I mean, the, yeah, the, the left, the left, it seems a lot of them think that there's a public health problem and therefore the, the, there should be public action to mitigate the harms from this. And therefore uh, we should, you know, mm. uh, encourage these kind of measures, but they can't wrap their minds around the criminalization of the, of the state and how predatory and uh, you know, it's just, despotic the 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 regime actually is yeah yeah i mean and big pharma i mean I mean the left are normally good on critique of you know big pharma political or concentrated economic power and so on but then they're not seeing it regulatory capture regulatory capture and i mean you know i i don't know what the reasons are in, in that there's been this blind spot on the left in in, in relation to that but but i mean look it is so, the evidence is so overwhelmingly clear that um, the responses to COVID-19 were, were, I mean, you only have to look at the excess mortality across countries now to see that the response made no sense um, before you even get into the questions of injections and vaccines and so on. Um, you know, that's a big, mis big misstep for people who have, bought into and all who continue to buy into this idea that this we need to lock down more we need to this is um you know they've really fallen for the propaganda um but at this point you know we're three years in right you know it's time to wake up and smell the coffee i mean because if they don't get out of that mindset then you know we'll be locked down wearing masks for, for the for the end of time <laughs> You know, yeah. Um, I mean, there were weird statements from people that are like, "Social distancing should never end," yeah. and these were like kind of high placed people. And you're thinking, like, you know, it's you you can see why the even on that level, which doesn't really get into the technocracy of economics, but it's just 
just the idea of making it so that people could not assemble uh, in any way. It just seems like it seems so perfect given the these events like the financial crisis or the, which was a really massive heist of like 2008, 2009, you know, I mean, all of these other issues. And then, and now they're saying like, okay, you need to all, all people should never come together, especially not if they're holding pitchforks and torches, you know, I mean, it's really something to that, that came about right at this time. Uh, And then people were like, it should never end. It was amazing. Yeah. I mean, I mean, Case van der Pyle's book States of Emergency is good. You know, his, political economy is his background but you know he he talks about you know the, the emergence of, of, a, of a new class block big tech intelligence and so on but but then you know does just frame it very much in terms of this was about controlling you know that there was levels of dissent the yellow vests in france going on and of course multiple settings around the world and so you can see the kind of conditions there where you can see the if the opportunity arises to start implementing processes and structures which get more control over the population. We've got to do it now and so on. So you can see where the enabling conditions came from in relation to that. Um, but but for sure, I mean, these things, you know, it's just this, this kind of thing of, you know how people would argue that the war on terrorism doesn't make sense because it won't work on its own terms, etc. Um, you know, the COVID-19 response of injecting everybody and locking down people doesn't make any sense and is now being shown overwhelmingly to be extremely harmful, just as I say, you know, look at the excess mortality and so on. So, you know, the, the thing doesn't make sense on its own terms. But when you then, as you, as you said, you, you add, you locate this and all of these other things going on where you've got open discussion about digital ID, open discussion, you know, with the vaccine mandates, when they're talking about mandates, they're talking about vaccine passports, mandates, digital ID, and so on. And at the same time, you have, you know, the, the whole central bank digital currency issue and and these kind of uh, these people from the World Economic Forum glowingly talking about digitized society. We're going to move into this interconnected world. And um, or as I was thinking of the Z- uh, Mark Zuckerberg, you know, the metaverse um, project and so on. Is, is, is that what this is? This is there's an ideology here, right? That there's politics and ideology going on here. Is, is that the, these people really do want us to transition into that kind of world? Um, and and you know, I perhaps might be much easier with it if this is all coming out of a long period of healthy democratic debate. <laughs> with people saying, yes, we should have this and we should move to this. But when it's happening under these conditions, you know, I, I think it's um, it's going to end in bad places. Um, you know, you know, ma- mandating stuff, people losing their jobs. This is what's been going on for the last two years. This is this is a very bad place for any democratic society to have got itself gotten itself into. Um, it's a nightmare here in Germany. I mean, you know, we were, anyone not injected was unable to go into anything but a shop, uh, a food shop or a pharmacy uh, last year. You've got segregation in place, effectively. Uh, you've got segregation in place. Um, you know, Austria tried to mandate the injection on the entire population, every single person. It failed because um, of the resistance and so on. But that's what they tried to do, and they wanted to do it in Germany as well. Right. It's very, it does not seem warranted by the statistics that you get about it. 
even if it's, I mean, there are reasons why they never allowed this ethically in terms of like, you know, medical codes and so on, but it doesn't even make sense based on, from what I can glean based on the, uh, the science of it, that it doesn't stop transmission. Uh, and it's not, you know, the, the, the safety of the vaccines is debatable, but they're not a hundred percent safe. <clears throat> so it's just, uh, there has to be some other agenda at play here. Um, you know, whether it's opportunism or, um, something worse than uh, is debatable because, you know, these it's in a, it's in that black box, mm. really the, uh, so much of it is, but it's that you're, you're correct to point out that they've tried to capitalize on this for pre-existing agendas that they had, which would consolidate con- and centralize power and thus wealth, mm. uh, in perpetuity, it would seem, I mean, that would seem to be their goal, uh, f- for these. And so it's, you know, something that people should resist, uh, but, there's a, you know, of course they know that and that's what the propaganda is for. So, um, where can people, uh, find more of your work? We'll put a link to propaganda and focus. Is there anywhere else that you would, uh, anything else you'd like to put, point put people a link at? to propaganda and focus and put, put a link to the organization for propaganda studies. Um, maybe if you put, is, is the, the most of your followers, are they on Twitter? I mean, if they put a link to my Twitter handle, um, so all, all of these, all of these activities I'm involved in, I've managed to squeeze them in, into my handle. So, so the working group in Syria a website is the links on my uh, handle. You know, I've got a WordPress page, which is basically I just list all the things I'm doing, publications, talks, and so on. Um, just to remind myself that I'm working hard enough, <laughs> mainly. Um, but that's, that's a good place for people to go. But And, and uh, Panda is, is the organization we're doing a lot of work on, on COVID-19. Um, people can check out that website and so on um but but primarily propaganda and focus organization propaganda studies then my twitter handle um is a, a good places to start well very good and uh i really appreciate you taking the time to uh speak with me today stuff good to talk to you thanks very much to Dana Chavaria for engineering the audio and to Mock Orange for the music. There are links to Pierce Robinson's work, which I have included in the show notes. I recommend his work, and I'm hoping to do more with Pierce and some of the other people working at Propaganda in Focus. We have been buried in propaganda for more than a century, if we're honest about it. Cutting through all the contrived lies and myths has to be one of our top priorities. The Empire wants to drown us in darkness. We fight back by chasing the light. Oh, well.